So on this, um, on this third day of practice, what we're going to begin to do is to open up the invitations of mindfulness. We started with the breath. We started um, um, stilling the mind and concentrating the mind and getting familiar with this process of awareness and, and mindfulness, uh, opening to sensations of the body physical sensations that, that are with us all the time. This is the only vehicle that has been given to us to live this life. And, um, and the, the next area that we would invite you to explore with your mindfulness is uh, the realm of our emotional life, our emotions and feelings. And just to... Um, articulate a slight difference in um, organization um, between Eastern and Western psychology. Uh, You know, in Western psychology, we tend to separate the emotional field from the field of thinking and thoughts, the mind, the mind and heart. And um, in Asian cultures and where the Dharma sort of originated, and this is actually... um, uh, this is actually be cultural beyond just the Dharma, is that uh, Asian cultures really view the heart-mind to be one. In, in Pali, the word is citta, mind-heart. Um, and I also remember when my, when my father um, said, I think, because he was an academic professor, I think his heart, his hand went here, as opposed to where we usually go and point to. And so... Um, but for the purposes of our understanding of our, our culture, we tend to divide um, the exploration of our emotional field. And then tomorrow we'll, we'll um, get into the, the realm of thoughts. Not that you haven't had thoughts already. So again, as Gina was saying in the beginning of the, of the retreat, the... Um, the unfolding of the invitations may seem linear, but your experience isn't. Your experience is happening all the time, and it's not linear. And, and so, um, uh, really to honor that too, and, and to honor the fact that, that there is um, a way in which we're trying to guide you through that process. Um, and emotions can be... Um, a very complex field. Um, sometimes um, the 10,000 joys and sometimes the 10,000 sorrows. So, um, but there's a way in which we can um, be quite avoidant of strong emotions or, or just the territory of emotions. And there's this, um, I used to be trained as a um, psychotherapist and there's this classic cartoon that you have someone in session and they're lying on a couch and and he turns to his therapist and says um, you know I'm still having these feelings can you up the dosage <laughs> so there's a way in which we actually turn away from the feelings that arise and so the invitation of mindfulness is to actually turn towards with skillfulness and again building on the mindfulness invitations that we've already received, the first place that you're invited to experience and notice your emotional landscape is in the body. How does it feel? How does the embodiment of that emotion feel in the body? Because, again, that's the vehicle that we've been given. And for the stronger emotions, you know that you actually feel them in your body. Sadness, anger, joy. You know, there's that vibration or heat or um, uh, contraction possibly. But you also feel all of the subtle emotions too. And so as you, as you tune your awareness with greater and greater detail and refinement, as that, as that muscle becomes 
more spacious and, and stronger, you'll also be able to track the more subtle emotions in your, in your landscape as well. So really the invitation is to, to notice how it's manifesting physically. Something that, that and, and um, um, Sharon was, allu- was, was referring to this in her talk last night, that sometimes the experience, the emotion, is conflated with the response. It becomes the one and the same thing, that we react as soon as the emotion arises. And so mindfulness allows us to create some space to differentiate between the feeling state, the the emotional state, and what is skillful to respond to. So one of the supports in this is really to notice the pleasant, unpleasant nature or the neutral nature of the emotion. Again, I think I referred to this in, uh, in my talk around noticing the impulse, noticing the impulse behind the emotion and not needing to respond, but just noticing what is going on for you. And really, not to necessarily search the emotions out because they will come and they will pass. There is um, no state of mind that's permanent. So just to notice, just like the breath, the inception of the breath, the length, how it tapers, the ending, and the, and, you know, the space, and then the arising of, of the next experience. Some other supports around when, when emotions arise, just for your exploration. Again, to, to remind you that, that the awareness of the emotion is not being lost in the feeling state itself. So if something is intense, if there is sadness or anger or grief, the awareness of that mental state is not being lost in it. And that gives you some space to notice what is going on, to notice the coming and going of these states of heart and mind. Just allow yourself also to check the attitude towards these arisings. Can you simply meet them with your mindfulness? Just touching, this touching is the gentleness. Not, again, not pushing it away because it, it feels um, like you shouldn't be having them or that there's some uh, discomfort. And not, if there are positive emotional states, not wanting more of them, they're often states of, of bliss or contentment or tranquility. And you may think that, oh, this is the state of mind that meditation creates. I want more of this. So simply just noticing the arising without needing it to be different. Along with these emotional states, just a reminder, um, because a lot of the emotional states uh, contain some of the hindrances, some of the challenging emotional states. So the... um, the, the strong desire or the, the lust around sense desires and pleasures, the aversion, the ill will, the, um, the uh, pushing away, the restlessness and the anxiety or the worry that may come up. So restlessness can be um, both a physical experience, but also it can be a mental experience of of worry and anxiety or remorse. And the opposite of that, of course, that, that many of you have talked about um, around the dullness or the sleepiness that also may be either physical, but it also could be a, a mental state of um, sometimes when a, um, 
an experience arises that we don't really want to face, we know what it's like to go to sleep. I mean, we're not physically asleep, but we just, you know, blank out. So really, again, to just notice these emotional states as energies. And the last hindrance, of course, is, is that of skeptical doubt. One of the things that supports the coming and going of these um, states of heart and mind is to accept them more and believe them less. It's just a phrase that, that helps me. You know, to allow them more into your experience and don't believe them. You know, it's, it's not a permanent reality. And if it's really hard not to believe them, that it feels like so real, what I pretend to do is, is um, I pretend to have these emotional states emanate from the person in front of me and see if I still believe them. You know, just, just to depersonalize it a little bit, that they're not mine, that I am so much more than just this particular emotional state. And just talking about these emotional states as universal energies, there's another, you know, little um, uh, cartoon that I like to quote. And, and uh, uh, again, there's this doctor and he's talking to a patient and he's saying, you know, these feelings of yours aren't unusual. In fact, several of them have major websites. <laughs> Which is true. I mean, you know, the virtual websites of our mind are shared by all of us. They're not personal. So in that way, you can hold them lightly and not believe them. The last, you know, balancing part of the holding lightly is the balancing. Is that usually when we talk about, you know, emotional states, where does your mind go? Where does the thinking mind go? Usually goes to the difficult ones. You know, oh, I don't want to go there. And just to remember that each of your lives are, are composed of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That there is no life, no human life that is exempt. There is no life that only has the sorrows and there is no life that only has the joys. And so Thich Nhat Hanh words this quite beautifully when a difficult emotional state arises, where's the non-problem? Because there is some place in your experience that is beyond the emotional state that you're experiencing. And that just helps balance you know, what, what is arising. We have no right to ask when difficult emotions come, why did this happen to me? Unless we ask the same question for every moment of happiness that comes our way. Again, the balance so that you don't get lost in, in the feeling or the emotions. So just inviting, inviting yourself into the posture that you're accustomed to, that you're settled in a relaxed and yet alert place. Perhaps starting with the breath allowing the awareness to settle, feeling the sensations of the body after the morning meal.
And if there's nothing predominant in your awareness in this moment, allowing the mindfulness to very gently rest in either the breath or a location in the body,
So that was perhaps a slightly shorter sitting only because I wanted to allow some time for questions and um, I have quite a few announcements um, that I'll do at the end um, and we'll prepare for our the next um, set of group meetings. So do any, are there any questions that um, about your practice up until this point of the retreat that would be helpful? I'm not sure how to ask it. I think it's the mutual. Um, I've been more curious about it during this retreat than ever before. That's good. Because I'm noticing that I want to keep filling it up. I think, like the sister said yesterday, like just with, you know, I look for like the unpleasant and I look for the pleasant. I'm just. So how to like be more with the neutral? Because hmm. um, I'm also noticing that sometimes I feel a little checked out when it's um, when there's nothing happening. So then I feel like then I go searching for mm-hmm. um, like strong emotions or something pleasant. So the question was um, how to more work in the arena of neutral experiences that. Um, she often can identify or go for or even look for pleasant experiences or unpleasant experiences, but it's, um, it's hard. and I'm, so I'm going to assume a little bit that it's harder to stay with that, that place of, of um, not this peak experience or not this intense low. And, um, you know, so isn't it interesting that our culture has conditioned us to be drama queens. <laughs> you know, we, we like the highs and we can notice them and we actually live the lows pretty well too. Uh, you know, we can wallow in, in those negative mind states or heart states. And there's a whole life in between that we often miss. Um, and, you know, the... I, the invitation of mindfulness is as you, the fact that you're being curious in this retreat indicates to me at least that your mindfulness is already strengthening around this particular area because when you're interested in something, that's where your mindfulness will be, it will, um, be connected more. Um, and in that neutral space, often the reaction, the response, the unconscious reaction is to be bored. So the fact that you're curious is already a movement um, towards an increasing capacity to explore this place of, of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, nor neither extreme. And um, I'll paraphrase, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but um, this place that the Buddha called contentment that the um, uh, that wealth and richness in the world isn't determined by financial states or how many resources you have, but whether you are actually content with whatever you have. And so some of the invitations around um, can you just be with things as they are, not needing to be not needing them to be anything other than they are, is this exploration of contentment. Contentment with the high, the low, and the middle. Um, And it can be a very subtle state. It can be calm. So how does calm or tranquility actually feel in the body because we're so conditioned to the the extremes? So it's like... um, you know, as you play this instrument of mindfulness, the, the notes get softer, but the, you still can identify the tones. Thanks for the question. Please. Um, mm, mm. 
so the sister is saying that you know in her first retreat that 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 there are songs I don't think you're the only person in this room that has that experience. So, and I'm not going to identify the songs that have gone through my head because they'll go through your head immediately. And um, so part of it is, part of it you can notice as a mindfulness practice of just trying to notice the tonality without without going to the content, because as soon as the words or the lyrics of the song appear, you know, that's where we get lost. We get lost in the content. Um, to be honest with you, one of my techniques of working with it is to um, do Tibetan chants in, in my head, because the, the chanting, um, or even the refuges, Buddham, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato, because um, I don't attach to the lyrics or the the melody as much as, and the and the chants give me a chance to detach, even though it's a repetitive um, uh, gesture, internal gesture, Um, and also to just notice that the songs themselves pass. The categories of of you know of loving kindness that we begin to extend um, for me are really archetypical. So and yet we focus on a particular person within that archetype. So um, the archetype of the benefactor is someone who has supported you in your journey, someone who has contributed. Um, you know, a piece of learning or or um, resource that you wouldn't be who you are today without a mentor, perhaps. So there are many people that can fit into that category. So the invitation is really just to select one for the time being to again practice, and then you know, as you expand the practice, as you take it into your life. Um, other people may arise, and you can, you know, cycle through that. Does that make sense? One more, please. When I start to meditate, I, in my mind, starts to go all over the place. I try to focus on my breath, but although I'm focusing on my breath, I still feel the thoughts in the background. Yes. That's actually quite beautiful. So uh, that we haven't we haven't actually talked about. But so we talked about the expansion of mindfulness from this narrow focus, concentrated focus on on the breath, opening to different objects. But there is also a dimensionality to mindfulness. So I mentioned this in one of my small groups that. Um, at, in this very moment, you can be focused on the tone of my voice. But there are other sounds in the room going on. You know, there's a, there's a slight buzz from whatever electricity is going on, and there's some movement in the room, the, the traffic that is going by. It is actually possible to push the tonality of my voice in this moment into the background and pull the, the more subtle sounds into the foreground. So there's a dimensionality to our, our awareness. And really there's, you know, uh, so in your, in your particular case, the thoughts are, are in the background, even though the, the breath is in the foreground. And that's just perfectly fine. You know, allow the awareness to, to rest in, in that stillness. And there's some thoughts that come and go. However, this technique of foreground and background is particularly helpful when something that can uh, be more disruptive to the stillness, for example, a really strong emotion or pain. 
It's a really good technique for chronic pain. The chronic pain floods the experience and, and that's not helpful. So is it possible to, to pull you know, what's in the background, which is your breath or um, another sensation in, in another part of your body into the foreground, not repressing the, the difficult experience, um, but just allowing it to recede into the background and just playing with that. Thank you for the question. So I have uh, um, quite a few announcements. Um, we're doing our second set of group meetings, um, and then tomorrow we'll be doing our first set of individual meetings. Um, we really would like all of you to attend all of these meetings. They're, um, it's really important for us to check in with you. So they're not regarded as optional. Um, as you can hear, the invitations and the instructions may be repetitive. We, we try to say the same thing in different ways. But how they land on you is very different. And so that's one of the reasons why it's important for at least one of us to check in with you uh, periodically during the retreat. So, um, and you know, as you begin to really relax into this experience, as, as things begin to fall away, um, there's a natural tendency for the container to get a little relaxed too. But that actually isn't beneficial. So we're going to sort of gather the energy of the container back to allow you to actually deepen and relax further. And part of that is really reminding, again, mindfulness, just the reminder to honor the silence, the nobility of the silence. Um, that in this particular definition of silence, silence does not include whispering. It doesn't include sort of the quiet talk or the nonverbal gestures. Um, and we've gotten several notes around, um, you know, uh, this kind of, of shifting of the silence in the dining hall. And just realize that it, it really impacts the practice of, of everyone around you. And, and so your, your care and attention is um, not just appreciated by us who are, you know, weaving the container, but it, it most importantly is appreciated by each of you. Also, um, you know, many of you have arrived with um, companions and partners and spouses, and, and it's such a gift to do this practice together alone. You know, it, you, you actually deepen the intimacy. My partner, Stephen, and I, when we go on retreats, we have no contact. Sometimes we sit next to each other in the dining room, but not always. But we don't have any verbal or nonverbal contact. And the communication that occurs after the retreat is delicious. It's so rich. And we learn so much about each other when we're able to allow us to um, explore without any sort of interference. So again, in the invitation into that opportunity, which we don't usually get in our, in our world. Um, there are a few service yogi jobs that are, remain unfilled. And um, some of you arrived yesterday and some of you may not have yogi jobs. Some of you may not be able to physically do these service jobs, which is totally fine, and, and that's totally, you know, um, uh, acceptable and, and welcomed. Uh, but for those of you who are physically able to do these service jobs, they're not for the benefit of the facility. This is not about unpaid labor. This is about service, and this is about bringing our mindfulness practice into our community. Because each of you who do these service jobs actually support this community. 
And it is a way of, of, of extending this mindfulness practice, awareness practice, from the internal experience into our external experience of, of our relationship with others. This particular lineage and tradition that, that has come to the West, you know, we have you know, these, these jobs that may take 30, 40 minutes a day. In a lot of Mahayana and Zen retreats, you have half a day in which you do work, and it's regarded as practice. So it has a very deep history and purpose within, within Dharma, just so that you know that it's rooted and it's not just about sort of getting things done. So your attention to that. And, and if you don't have a job that right now and, and you're able to do one, please go to the office and, and um, fill, that, um, fill that list. So thanks for your patience. And I have one more rather complex issue to, to also weave the container around. And, and really that is the deepening invitation to an awareness around um, the impact of fragrances and chemicals on our larger community. And I know this is a really complex issue. We deal with it um, at East Bay Meditation Center all the time because fragrance and scent is also a form of cultural expression. It's also a form of expression of one's gender, of one's identity, even of one's orientation. I know a lot of gay men who are attached to their fragrances. And yet there are participants in our community that are medically impacted. And it's a cumulative um, um, experience. It's not just, for, for many of us who are, again, fully physically abled, the fragrances come and go into our experience. And for these individuals, they actually accumulate and become toxic. And so usually they are in the position of needing to move. You know, that if someone is wearing a, a heavily fragranced product, they actually have to move to the back of the room or out of the room. And that is actually distressing for a community that actually cares for itself. Um, so the invitation is really to notice the impact of these things for these couple of days and to refrain from, and, and I know that you know, there are certain hair products and, 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 and cosmetic products that, that don't come unscented. But um, what, is it, what is it like to live a life letting go of these products that define us? Uh, you know, the monastics, both the, the men and the women, actually shave off all of, all of the hair and let go of all of the cosmetic and uh, products of adornment. That's one of the classic phrases. So what would it be like not to adorn this identity and really live a life that is free from any of that um, uh, manipulation? And in doing so, you actually benefit those people around us that, that are medically compromised. So your attention to this and your patience is so greatly appreciated. Have a really wonderful day of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.